Anything else? Okay. Lord willing, we will go back to Romans 8 next week and we'll finish uh, that series in Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. We'll do that next week. But I wanted to preach a message to you this morning. It is what this religious world considers the most religious holiday of the year. I'd say it's probably right up there with Christmas, but probably exceeds Christmas because they've attached so much of their false hope to what they consider uh, his life and his death and his resurrection, but they do not understand what he actually accomplished. They do not understand the significance of what this glorious person is. They don't even know who this glorious person is. They know a Christ. They know a gospel, but it's another Jesus And it's another gospel. I've entitled this message, Raised for Our Justification. Raised for Our Justification. I'd like for you to turn to Romans chapter 4, and we're only going to look at one verse this morning. Romans 4, verse 25. And it's an important verse. Who was delivered... For our offenses. Who is this? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was delivered for our offenses. And listen to this. Was raised again. For our justification. Not not much there, but it's a whole lot there. (laughs) I tell you, in reality, you can't do justice to it in just one message. Don't think, oh, no. (laughs) I think I can say it all pretty quickly this morning. You know, and this is the thing that's so troubling. Yeah, I'm like you. You know, we we live in this world in which we live, and we have all seen as this religious world has approached this holiday as it's been coming. And if you live around the Ruston area, you know all the various churches, how they put up all, just like they do at Christmas time, they put up the manger scene. Well, most of them put out the three crosses, and they start changing the robe, you know, the, the veil on the crosses. They go from white to red to, to, to I know from, well, you know what I'm talking about, the different colors. It's just, and they, they say things, and they post things about this glorious event with absolutely no understanding of what actually occurred that particular weekend when our Lord Jesus Christ came. And most of them don't understand this. You know, they don't understand that it is absolutely essential for the child of God that we understand the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. His bodily resurrection. I almost entitled this message, and we're going to get to it at the end of this message from over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ be not raised, then is your faith vain. You're yet in your sins. Just think about that. If he's still in the ground over there somewhere, I'm looking at a group, and I'm, I'm speaking to you as a lost person. Our text that we're looking at this morning here, Romans 4 verse 25, directly connects our justification. Listen, it connects our justification to Christ's resurrection from the dead who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. This is so important. Christ's resurrection 
wasn't merely a historical event that, that showed he had risen from the dead according to God's promise. Our Lord Jesus Christ, by his own words on the subject, revealed the importance of it. He told his apostles, you and I included, is his children. Jesus said unto them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it remaineth alone. But if it die, now he's speaking a parable, but those that are of God hear God's word. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. That word bringeth there, it means it bears much fruit. In other words, his going into the ground and coming forth is the Lord our righteousness. It bears much fruit. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, where Paul declares to them the content of the true gospel message. You know, he included Christ's bodily resurrection as an essential part of it. Listen to this. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory that which I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. But he didn't stop there. And that he was buried. And that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Our Lord Jesus Christ made this statement to his disciples. And I, if I be lifted up, draw, lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. I know I told you this when we went through Hebrews 12, verse by verse. I don't know how long ago it was, but it was a while ago, I think. This phrase translated, be lifted up, it gives us an indication of the importance of Christ's bodily resurrection and ascension. That original word translated, lifted up, be lifted up, it means to lift up on high, to exalt, to raise to the very summit of opulence and prosperity. The way the believers justified saints lift up on high, raise to the very summit of opulence, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how we do that? By clearly and simply, and I emphasize that, clearly and simply. Declaring Christ's person and his word. And that's what Paul meant when he told that young preacher, Timothy. He said, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and with all doctrine, with all teaching. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the longer that I do this, the the I think more than anything in my life that I want to do, I want to plainly and dogmatically magnify Christ's person and his work every time I stand up here before you and preaching about what he did. Don't you? When I talk to men and women, I don't want to be just a friend to men and women. I want to tell them the truth. I want to be honest with men and women. 
And I don't want them to point them to a church or to a profession or to a change in their own life. Where do we point sinners to? We point them to Christ, to his blood and his righteousness. So as a preacher of God's gospel and as a fellow believer, just like you, a sinner saved by God's grace, one justified and redeemed by the same Christ that you were justified and redeemed by, I want to ever and always by my words exalt him in his person and set him forth in a glorious way as it's done in this passage that we want to look at this morning, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now let's think about this verse for just a few minutes. And the first thing I'd have us to consider is who. It's just, this is always the most important. Who was delivered for our offenses? Because I tell you, if you're wrong there, if you're wrong on who was delivered, Everything else after it is wrong and was raised again for our justification. Aren't you grateful? Aren't you thankful that the eternal God, that he did not commit this grand act of redemption, this grand act of salvation, this grand uh, accomplishment of redeeming sinners from sin and the justification of all those chose in this glorious person, one equal with God, placed it on one truly God, yet truly man. One like us, yet without sin, possessing a human body and a human soul. Paul told Timothy, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Listen, justified by the Spirit. It says in, but it literally means justified by the Spirit. Seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. God could not, and he did not entrust this task to angels. Nor into the hand of man's so-called free will. Think about it this way. All the angels in glory combined, they couldn't accomplish this work. They couldn't. Mere man, the son of Adam, couldn't accomplish it either. What did it require? It required and it demanded one who could fulfill all righteousness and make perfect eternal satisfaction to God's inflexible and infinite justice. That's why we read Hebrews chapter 10. Turn back over there for just a second. Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to look at, at four verses in particular. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 10 through verse 14. We read it every time we take the Lord's table. By the which will we are sanctified, made holy, set apart for God's use. How did he do that? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. How many times? Just once. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which under that old covenant, what could they never do? They could never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, did something that no priest, no Levitical priest ever did in history. He sat down. If you know anything in the history of the tabernacle and the temple, there were no places inside that you could sit down. Because why? 
that old Levitical priest's work was never done. There was always another sacrifice to be offered. There was always a need to keep the showbread fresh. There was always a responsibility to keep the candle burning. But this person, by one sacrifice of himself, forever sat down. From henceforth, expecting, verse 13 says, till his enemies be made his footstool, and praise God for by one offering. What offering? The offering of himself. He hath perfected how long? Forever. Who? All men and women without exception? No, them that are the same ones that he talked about back up in verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified. Who? All the elect of God in every generation. All of them. Isaiah described the Lord Jesus Christ, the necessity of his glorious person this way. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. Who's he delight in? He doesn't delight in us personally. Who does he delight in? He delights in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have put my spirit upon him, upon Christ. He shall bring forth judgment, justice, to who? To the Gentiles, you and me. He said again in Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. What do you say? And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Nothing less would do. And thank God nothing more was required. Nothing on my part. Not my faith. Not my repentance, not my perseverance. This is so important that we understand what this means to you and me. And if you don't get anything else out of this message this morning, please get these statements. I want to read them because I want to make sure that I get this exactly the way that I wrote it down. Christ's office as the servant of Jehovah was made glorious and exalted not because of the work he accomplished, Kenny. That's a glorious work. He did accomplish our salvation. But because of the glory of the person who performed the work. Let me read it to you again. Christ's office as the servant of Jehovah was made glorious and exalted not because of the work he accomplished, but because of the glory of of the person who performed the work. You say, I don't believe that. Well, let Christ's words be your guide. I have glorified thee on the earth. And he did, did he not? By offering himself a sacrifice for sins that sanctified his people forever. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He hadn't done the work yet, but it's God who speaks of the things that are not as though they are. What does he say? It's a done deal. Didn't mean he didn't have to do it. He had to do it. It was required to offer of him his whole person, body and soul. I finished the work that thou gavest me to do. And listen to his word. This isn't my words. This is our Lord's word. And now, O Father, glorify me, not based on what I've done, but glorify me with thine own self. Glorify me with the glory which I have. Before we ever came. Huh? 
People, our Lord Jesus Christ wasn't changed by the events that he did on the behalf of those he stood as their surety and representative. If, if it changed him, what is he? He's found to be a liar. Because the scriptures say of him, what? Jesus Christ the same yesterday, the same today, and the same forever. I tell, of a truth, our Redeemer, our Justifier, our Mediator, our Friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was he? He was Emmanuel, which being interpreted is what? Who was down here? God was with us. That's Christ's person. That's who came. That's, that's, what it, that's who was required to come. If there had been any way salvation could have been accomplished other than through this glorious person, I tell you, God would have done so. And for him to not do so would be unjust. Now, let's consider the work which glorifies and honors the Father. And the apostle sets forth two aspects of the work here in this text this morning. First, he declares of this person, this one who is Emmanuel, being interpreted God with us, who was delivered for our offenses. Those words translated was delivered means to give into the hands of another. Isn't that what he did with his, our Lord Jesus Christ? Or even better, it means to deliver one up to custody, to be judged, to be condemned, to be punished, to be scourged, to be tormented, and to be put to death. Who did that? God did it. The fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, for one specific purpose to redeem, to save, and to eternally justify every person that was given unto him in the everlasting covenant of grace. Folks, while it's true that the Pharisees planned to kill Christ from his first words, that Judas Iscariot betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ, and that Pilate sentenced him to death, it was the Father who gave over his holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinner's son to death. And God the Father delivered him into the hands of sinful men. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, Peter declared this to be the case. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. And they were, were they not? It amazed me. Everybody that hated one another when it came to the Lord of glory and the salvation full and free through that promised Messiah, they all became one. Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jews. But listen, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel had determined before to be done. One old author wrote this concerning Christ's crucifixion. He said, The crucifixion of Christ was the greatest of all crimes 
both hateful and provoking in the sight of God. Yet it was the will of God that it should take place in order to accomplish the greatest good. Christ's crucifixion wasn't a mere afterthought of God, but was decreed by God, and He willed and purposed it to come to pass, ordering every circumstance by His providence to accomplish His purpose to glorify Himself as both a just God and a Savior. You listen to me closely. God's determinate counsel that the wicked deed should be done formed no excuse for the ones who performed the act. They couldn't say, well, he made me this way. Listen, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you, listen, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. They, listen, they did exactly what they wanted to do. They hated the Lord of glory. But in doing exactly what they wanted to do, what did they actually do? They did what God had purposed and determined to do from all glory, from all eternity. It's kind of like when Joseph told his brethren, as for you, you thought evil against me, but what did God mean it for? God meant it unto good. Here's a question. What was Christ delivered for? He says it was delivered for our offenses. Literally translated, it declares Christ was delivered on account of our offenses. You know what this does? This shows us the necessity of Christ's death. Our Lord Jesus Christ, by his obedience unto death, wasn't just given us an example to follow, that we ought to be willing to die. His being delivered by the Father was for the expiation or the putting away of the guilt of our sins, totally and completely. And even though Christ was delivered by the Father for our offense, Christ, of his own free will and accord, he laid down his life as the ransom price for the offenses, literally the trespasses or the sin of those whom he represented. He said this again, as he spoke about his sheep in John chapter 10, he said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down. I have power to lay it down. And what? I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Again, Isaiah declared of Christ, being delivered by the Father for the sins of his people, says this, He was wounded, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. You listen to me. Christ wasn't delivered to death for his own sins. And he wasn't delivered to death for the sins of the angels that fell. Nor was he delivered for all the sins of all men and women without exception since all are not saved. He was delivered, that one little pronoun, he was delivered for our offenses. Whose? The sins of all God's elect, all those chosen in the everlasting covenant of grace. And Christ was delivered for these sins and these sins only. And listen, 
these sins were the cause of his death. And the end of his death, you know what it is? It was our reconciliation. See, and his death satisfied every jot and every tittle of God's law and justice on our behalf. He, Paul said, verse 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But here's the second aspect of Emmanuel's work. He was raised again for our justification. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote a passage that reveals how important this aspect of Christ's words work was. He says, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, think about that. Didn't just say if Christ didn't die. He said, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. What does that mean to me as a sinner? Particularly as it relates to my eternal salvation. Still, one of my favorite commentators is Robert Haldane. And in his commentary, he said this, or this verse, he was raised that we might enter into the holy place not made with hands, that he, that he might enter into the holy place not made with hands and present his own blood, that we might be made righteous through his death for us. Is the death of Christ according to the determinate counsel of a holy and righteous God was a demonstration of the guilt of his people. So his resurrection was their acquittal. From how much? From every charge. From all of them. Having substituted himself in the place of sinners, our Lord Jesus Christ suffered in his own punishment, in his own person, all the punishment for the sins of all whom he represented, submitting himself to that declaration that was made to our first father, Adam, in the garden. What was that? In the day that thou eatest thereof, Thou shalt surely die. Listen, Christ bore every single solitary aspect of the curse of our sins. And having satisfied every righteous demand of infinite law and justice, he came forth from among the dead as a testimony that the threatening of God was fully accomplished. He came forth as a pledge that his sacrifice was accepted, that by his obedience unto death, divine justice was satisfied, that the law was honored and magnified and that eternal life was afforded to every one of those for whom he died. Peter wrote it like this, who his own self bear our sins in his own body in the, on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. But you think about this too. Christ was quickened by the Spirit. Peter put it like this, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. What does that mean to me? It also says this. He says that the Spirit justified him. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, 
justified by the Spirit. I want to be very clear on this. Christ's justification means he was justified. He was declared righteous from every charge that could be alleged against him as our surety, our substitute, and our representative and covenant head, all those iniquities that he bore. And the justification of his people, which includes not only the pardon of their sin, but also their title to the eternal inheritance, it was begun in his death, but it was perfected by his resurrection. He worked out their justification by his death. But listen to me, it's efficacy depending on what? His resurrection. By his death, he paid our debt. And in his resurrection, he received in his glorious body everything that he had fully attained and established for them. You think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15 again. We started with this. Remember the implications if Christ didn't raise. Paul declares this comfort and truth to you and me. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, Afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. I hope and I pray that God, through his gospel truth concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, exalts in our hearts and in our minds and in our understanding who he is and what he actually did on our behalf, that he actually saved his people from his sin, their sins and didn't just merely make it possible. He redeemed us and justified us by his obedience unto death. Let's stand together. And we'll be dismissed. I appreciate your presence. Lord bless you and keep you until we see you.